Budget hearings will take up much of Congress's time this week. Transportation Department will be big. Plus, there's a vote on a nomination to a crucial DOT agency. We get the rundown from Bloomberg Government Deputy News Director Lauren Duggan. And it seems like this Congress, which had a funny start because of the speaker battle, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, has kind of reached cruising altitude, to stick with the DOT metaphor there. To some extent, yes. I mean, they've, they've had some fits and starts here. It, it took a while to get both chambers up and running, but they have done so now. And we've really seen an uptick in recent weeks of hearings in, in both the House and the Senate. Uh, the budget, obviously, every time that arrives on Capitol Hill, that forces more budget hearings to start happening. So that's that's quickened the pace as well. But um, we're seeing more bills come to the floor. We're seeing more bills come out of committee. Um, so we're definitely getting into a, a more normal rhythm with Congress as the weeks go on here. And this coming week, what will the budget agenda look like? Well, I, I think the key hearings might again be with Janet Yellen, who was up on the Hill last week to talk about budget stuff. But anytime she's there, she's going to get asked about everything going on with the tax um, issues or even banking, which has become a, a big issue for Congress to, to weigh in on. So I think that her hearings will be closely watched because something she says may move markets. But in terms of more traditional review of the budget, we'll see Pete Buttigieg go up and talk about the Transportation Department budget, which you know asks for um, some key investments after things like the bipartisan infrastructure law that was signed in to signed back in 2021. So you know he'll make a case for the programs he wants to see increase. And um, I think we'll see a, a number of these hearings start to kick into gear, both in the appropriations committees, but then also the authorizers like the Hask and SAS, the armed services committees that are writing the defense authorization bill. They're looking at programs that they want to get information about as well. And FAA has been reauthorized? That bill has to be taken up some point this year. So in addition to confirming leadership, one of the top things Congress wants to do this year is pass a new FAA authorization, probably a multi-year one, to ensure that all the taxes that help fund the programs are continued and use this as an opportunity to maybe change some FAA operations because as we've known from recent hearings on this, there is a lot going on at the FAA, whether it was the system that shut down and ground aviation to a halt for a short period of time or near collisions. There's a lot going on with the FAA that Congress is going to want to weigh in on through this legislation. Yeah, often there's some sort of a crisis that shines light on a crucial need in air traffic control. You know, at one time in the 50s, regrettably, it was horrible midair collisions that showed how primitive air traffic control was. We don't have that issue now, but that NOTAMS idea showed that a crucial piece of the safety apparatus anyway in FAA, goodness, it hadn't been updated in decades, and they're still a decade away from updating it. Right. And one of the things that the Commerce Committee, who will be considering Phil Washington's nomination, is also considering is a bill to create a task force on that NOTAM system. So that's already something they're trying to work on, even if they don't want to wait for the larger, longer FAA reauthorization to be finished. Uh, maybe they'll peel off that one piece and do that quicker. And Phil Washington looks like he's not going to necessarily sail through his vote as administrator of FAA. There's been some opposition that came in late last week from Republicans. Yep, he's he's run into trouble with Republicans who have questioned his experience to do this job. Um, there's also been a question hanging over him about whether he needed a waiver because of his military experience when FAA is supposed to be headed by a civilian, although there seemed to be a memo coming out that, that maybe downplayed the need for that. But 
this this nomination has been long stalled. It, it hasn't moved. They've had fits and starts, and there's been some legal action involving Phil Washington that has also come into play here and and c- kind of hit the pause button once or twice. If they have the votes on the committee, they can get it to the floor, and presumably they'd have the votes on the floor as well at that point. Um, they rarely put somebody up only to go down on the floor. So um, my assumption is that they're continuing to push forward. They they probably have the support they need. But they'll be counting every vote between now and then, I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, it's probably debatable how much aviation experience the administrator needs because it's the deputies and the, and the career people that make a lot of that machinery work, and you've got a complicated piece of machinery in the FAA, but that's for Congress to debate. We're speaking with Lauren Duggan, Deputy News Director at Bloomberg Government. And getting back to Janet Yellen, besides people skittish over flying, <laughs> they're also skittish over having money in the bank and Despite her repeated protestations that the banking system is sound, the markets aren't showing that they believe it. Individual investors or bank share or bank account holders aren't either. And so it seems like she can't escape these questions no matter what she's talking about in the coming week. No, she won't. I think anytime she's in front of members of Congress, she's going to get asked these questions and I'm sure do all that she can to try to calm the markets down, calm investors down, calm individual banking customers down too. You know, I think Congress hasn't really said what they want to do here. There's been some immediate calls from members of Congress to maybe undo a 2018 change that was made to the level of assets that subjected you to higher regulation or lower regulation. Uh, uh, That's been pointed to by some people. It's not clear to me that that would move through, given that the split control of Congress may make that difficult. But, you know, there there could be other ideas that they come up with, um, work on that over the next couple of weeks and months. But surely the, the most important thing right now is to try to get confidence back in the system. And members of Congress will probably do what they can to help y'all and get there. But they will have tough questions for her on on things that they're doing. And, you know, I think things like moral hazard will come into play as well. Like, do we still have a $250,000 limit on FDIC? Or is it more than that? I think that's a question members of Congress have asked and, and have thought about and may have some opinions about given their, their general outlook. And I think the toxic asset relief program from the 2008-2009 meltdown is actually still in business. (laughs) And I don't think anyone wants another wave of toxic assets coming into government receivership because these things have long tails. Right. Absolutely. It can go on for a while, but a lot of what's happened so far has been a mix of government. But as we saw, other banks banded together to try to help First Republic out last week, um, which is kind of the industry trying to take care of itself, too. So there's a lot lot happening on a lot of fronts on that. And the House Republicans, they're in Florida for part of the week. What are they doing down there? Right, right now, they're um, Pontra Vedra Beach. They're having their annual issues conference where they, you know, have the chance to be alone in a different area, bring guests in and plot out their agenda for the rest of the year. This is a big year for them. They just took control of the house. They have a lot they want to get done. So this is a chance for them to have um, this kind of retreat and talk about that. So they're down there through Tuesday night. And then the House will come back into session on Wednesday with Republicans and Democrats um, going at legislating once again. But it's, you know, a chance to get away, do a little golfing and talk a little shop. And maybe hear from Ron DeSantis, who's you know suddenly in the Republican swirl, you know, with respect to 2024. It could be. I haven't seen all the guests, but, um, you know, certainly he's the governor of the state. And as we saw when the Democrats met in Baltimore, Democratic Governor Wes Moore went and met with them. So, you know, it's, it's always possible. Yeah, well, good. And I wanted to also ask you about the repeal of the authorizations for the use of military force. These go back a couple of decades. But is that a piece of housekeeping or are there politics around that also? Well, the concern here by people who want to repeal it, and we're talking about the 1999 
1991 one, excuse me, around the Gulf War and the Kuwait invasion, and then the 2002 one that was passed to enable that Iraq War. Um, the interest in getting rid of those is they have been used to justify other military action related to Iraq, but not always. And for some good governance and some housekeeping, they'd like to take those off the books. It wouldn't uh, take care, take out the 2001 authorization of the use of military force, which was the post 9-11 one right after the attacks that was signed into law. That would still be there and is used often as a as a reason for taking military action abroad. But the there is interest in clearing some of these things off the books. Um, some people would like it to be as part of a broader overhaul of authorizations of use of military force. But at the very least, this is the, the vote the Senate has before it next week, chopping out these Iraq ones. And just to wind back to the budget hearings, of course, the discussion is on the skinny than the fat but fatter budget that was submitted by the administration last week. But that doesn't really get them any closer to a counter proposal from the Republicans in the House if they have how they want agency spending to look, which means all of this debate doesn't really seem to get closer to that October 1st resolution that everyone dreams of. That's correct. And the general tone here is the Biden administration asked for increases for most agencies. As we know, House Republicans want to push spending down in most areas except defense and a couple of other key areas. So um, they have to reconcile what their top lines are going to be and how they're going to write these bills. The House and Senate appropriators do want to move quickly and try to get back to regular order, but it's going to be hard to do regular order too much if you're on completely different wavelengths on the House and the Senate side. But there, there are a lot of questions still hanging out there. The other things that were in the budget about mandatory spending changes or revenue changes as part of a debt limit debate, that's also something that will be joined once everybody's back into town. So there's no shortage of things to talk about on the budget side. Lauren Duggan is Deputy News Director at Bloomberg Government. As always, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, 
I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. Uh, I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in. And she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president at Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, we have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations, but you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them, and I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be 
impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way. That's sort of I, the I way that I kind brilliant. of see all of that. You that's know? <laughs> and um, being born in rural Southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can I can tell you that your your comments about traveling, getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling. It, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.